2: There's plenty of history in New England, but how often do communities drill down into their own stories as a way to engage residents about local history? Today we explore what's called public history and how it can help create a stronger sense of place. Coming up, we'll hear examples of this in Connecticut from Norwich to Guilford to Ansonia. And we'll learn how other states, ahem, Massachusetts, showcase public history in new and exciting ways. What's your town or city doing to promote locally based projects or initiatives? What part of your community's past should be showcased? Join the conversation. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at WhereWeLive. I want to welcome into the studio two guests. First, Leah Glazer. She's professor of history and coordinator of the Public History Program at Central Connecticut State University. Leah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Also, Chuck Arning is here, a National Park Service interpretive ranger and AV specialist. Chuck, welcome to where we live.
3: Excited to be here.
2: So let's start with you, Leah, first. Um, When we were talking about this show, uh, many of us have uh, probably experienced public history but may not have understood the definition. So what is public
4: history? So that's always a huge question, and it's one we constantly <laughs> talk about um, in, in as amongst each other, and um, it's always the big challenge for students. But public history is essentially history outside the academy, working with communities, translating what's in the academy to the public. Um, its public historians are people who work for federal agencies, work for cities, work for museums, preservation. Um,
2: we're out. We're outside of the classroom. That's the easiest. So Chuck Arning is an mm-hmm. example of a public yes, historian. True, exactly.
3: true. Um, so uh, I think the other piece of it is that we're in the communities. So it's sharing authority. It's talking about other voices that you don't normally hear. When I first came in the Park Service in 1993, the our mode of operations was to uncover those untold stories. And public history is perfect for doing that. As you can see, I'm a tall white guy in a green-gray uniform with a badge, and that can be off-putting for a lot of communities. So this whole thing about public history means you have to gain the trust of the folks you're working with. So you have to be in the community. You, know, you get coffee, you get lunch, you're out and about doing the things, and you're listening to people and tapping into some of those uh, untold stories that can, be, can resonate so well.
2: So, when we talk about the practice of public history, Leah, when did this become like an official field of study? I mentioned that you uh, lead the public history program at CCSU. So, CCSU's program has been around since about
4: 2002, but public history as a sort of a profession that was something that we started training historians to do um, was late 70s. Um, there was a glut of PhDs, there was a recognition that there were a lot of historians working with the public but sort of just had an academic background. And it started at UC Santa Barbara um, with a group of graduate students who are still a big part of the National Council on Public History. Um, and they started a journal and they started this big um, organization. And and all of these professional programs began to crop up and they've just been increasing in size um, every year with the idea that you know history has very practical applications and public history has all kinds of tools that can increase people's connections to place. Um, One of the big differences is focusing not just on history and time, but history and place um, and thinking of it in those terms. And so um, in New England, like everything else, we're sort of siloed. And so there's always been historic preservation programs, museum studies programs, archival programs, all kind of broken up. Public history sort of has come from west to east. I got my degree out west, um, and it's more of an umbrella um, for specifically history um, for all of those things. Um, so we have uh, CCSU's program. There's a, a couple of Massachusetts, UMass Amherst um, and they're starting to come out in New England but it's been in the West longer than the Northeast. So you can
2: study public mm-hmm. history but you don't necessarily have to have a degree associated to be a public historian?
4: Chuck? That's true.
3: Um, my background is quite bizarre so I not the way I would Send anyone to go there.
4: Increasingly, I think, more and more people are studying it and getting the degree. But absolutely, people come to it from all kinds of angles.
3: Yeah, Yeah. because I started on Wall Mm -hmm. Street and then taught in the teacher court in the prisons in New Jersey. So you can see it's a rather a complex structure. Um, But some of the key things that I think, if you think what a public historian does, is you listen. You're out in the communities and you're listening. You're listening to the voices. You're listening for stories. Because in essence, we're just a storyteller. But we're not using my voice to tell the story. I'm using your voice to tell the story. So when I went into the Cape Verdean community to talk about their trend, their movement from the Cape Verde Islands to Fox Point in Providence, Rhode Island, I wanted their stories to be told and their voices to be told. And there's there's a richness there that I'm just a vehicle. Hmm. The v- public historian is really just a vehicle. Um, the, one of the um, one of the the women I talked to Yvonne Smart, who was a librarian at Fox Point, and She was talking about when someone passes, they would do this, cherigisa was the word she used, which is a song that they would talk about. Oh, we loved him, he was so good, we miss him. And it was all very musical, very lyrical, and very cultural. And I just asked a question and she ran with that. And it was a very powerful piece about talking about a cultural moment that I was simply the vehicle to allow her to tell her story.
4: These facilitating skills are the kinds of skills, I guess, that. You know, yes, you can learn on the job, but it's um, it's much more powerful and effective. The argument was that you know you are you go and train for these skills, and then you kind of can hit the ground running, and you can under already understand um, and have some of these skills of facilitation. This term we called shared authority, where it's not um, the historian telling the community what their history is, but it's the local experts, you know, um, providing their expertise and, um, and then the collaborating with all of these different parties to bring out that sense of place and those connections.
2: It's a way to engage mm-hmm. the public uh, into history that, that jumps off the page. Mm-hmm. I was thinking back to all the history lessons we learn in school, and so often what we learn in the classroom is easily forgotten. But when you immerse yourself in a place... Mm-hmm. It's easier, or you figure out a way to relate to the history that you're learning. Maybe when we visit the national park uh, that you work at, Chuck, that's that, something that that connects with someone and it stays with them.
4: And that's what's so important when we talk about you know connection to place and keeping the physical environment and natural environment the sense of place. Um, you know, I'm a, I work in the preservation community, and uh, historical preservation is often kind of given this. Uh, impression that it's just about these old colonial houses, but it's really about um, having physical space, just like we have artifacts and mementos to help us remember, you need that, you need that physical place and space um, to be preserved, to be understood, and people need to feel connections to those in order to hold those memories. And those connections.
2: This is where we live. Today we're talking about public history. Again, a way to make history of a community accessible to the public. New ways to engage uh, citizens in uh, the history and facts that surround them in the towns and cities where they live. And studio with me, Leah Glazer, Professor of History and Coordinator of the Public History Program at Central Connecticut State University. Also, Chuck Arney, National Park Service Interpretive Ranger and AV Specialist. Chuck, I mentioned that you work at a, a national park. Tell us about where you work and how you uh, use this idea of public history every day and how you interact with people who visit?
3: Well, first of all, we have somewhat of a unique national park, and more national parks are actually moving in this direction. We're there partnership parks. The federal government does not own any land in the Blackstone Valley. Um, it's between uh, Worcester, Massachusetts, and uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and we have selected sites in this Blackstone Valley, which is... Um, where America's journey to industrialization began. And it's a rich tapestry of America's story um, because it starts in around 1790 when Samuel Slater here, but goes up until when the mills closed in the 1960s, 1970s. So you have this rich tapestry. So we can talk about immigration at all kinds of levels. We can talk about uh, women's rights and suffrages. We can talk about Underground Railroad and how that all played out in these mill villages. So I have this wide landscape of, you know, uh, the bl- watershed of Blackstone river. And so how I interact with people is I have to be in the community. I have to have coffee with, them, they have to know who I am and they have to begin a trust. Cause one of the key things about public history, it's a relationship. And you have to see me enough. And who is this guy? And why does he want to come into my house and listen to grandpa's stories? You know, I want to protect Grandpa. I don't want anybody to abuse his, his stories. And so it's really developing this relationship over time. And I've been fortunate to live to work in Blackstone Valley for just about 25 years now. So it makes my job easier because they know who I am. In the park service, to get a, a better job, most time you have to move out. You have to be very mobile. And I've been fortunate enough. And it works out really well. But being in the community and gaining their trust is really the key elements to I think to be a successful public historian.
2: And you have to drink coffee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious who are the people becoming public historians today. So Chuck said that he had a very non traditional path uh, to what to the position he holds at the National Park Service. But who are the people that are interested in this field of study and what are the jobs out there for them? So they
4: come from, you know, all over. Sometimes it's people who thought they wanted to be a teacher in history because they love history and then realize that being a history teacher is not all just about loving history. You really have to love being in the classroom and and having those classroom management skills. And um, so sometimes it's just about um, wanting to do something in history and realizing that you can do more than just teach. Um, Sometimes it's people who just love museums. I was one of those people that sort of I found my piece in museums all through growing up, um, and it's either um, you, know, you can go to museum studies programs, which involves art museums and other types, and anthropology museums um, with public history. You know, you you would want to focus on history museums, historic preservation. As I mentioned, is a big field in terms of understanding place and having the research skills um, to uh, identify the significance of places and to um, identify. Um, communities and facilitate uh, interest in saving those communities. So there's that advocacy place. Um, And public historians work for government agencies all the time. We have students who went and worked for FEMA, and now they're working for a public policy firm down in in D.C., park service, obviously, interpreters. Um, We have... Uh, public history students who just take those skills and do all sorts of things. We have one who's working for the American Bar Association, another who's the director of Camp Current here in Hartford. Um, so they do all sorts of things. and um, most of them are I happy to say that most of our graduates are
2: working. You mentioned museums. Mm-hmm. Um, how often are uh, the people leading these local museums from the community? or do they come from outside the state? This, this was a big issue. Um, so I didn't join the CCSU
4: Public History Program until 2006. It started in 2002. And um, what I found when I moved here, and I moved here from – I grew up in Northern Virginia, Boston, then I got here from Arizona. So big, circuitous route. Um, I noticed that ev- the people working in the public history field, in the, um, the museums and the preservation field, were not from Connecticut. And so our efforts here are – and there's something – difficult and just wrong about, and and absolutely, you know, I'm an outsider. I feel I can tell Connecticut stories, but Connecticut people should also be telling Connecticut stories. And um, we have this issue with um, people not feeling connections to Connecticut, these ideas of, of young people fleeing, although I work in the state system and our students really like Connecticut. It's home to them. Um, but to maintain those connections, um, you know, they need to learn their local history. I teach a local history class at CCSU. They get really excited when they actually start to learn about their community. Um, and so that just that idea of training, you know, Connecticut to appreciate Connecticut and
2: understand, you know, their connection to place. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpothanshul. In studio with me is Leah Glazer, professor of history and coordinator of the Public History Program at Central Connecticut State University. Also, Chuck Arning, arranger with the National Park Service. Today we're learning about public history, looking at how some communities focus on local history through engagement. Coming up, we'll hear about projects in two Connecticut towns. Now, what history in your community do you think should get more attention? What are some new ways to engage local residents? Join the conversation. Email wherewelive at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy nalba Fanchel. Today we're learning about public history, grassroots efforts to promote the history in a community through engagement. Public history can help individuals have a stronger connection to where they live. In studio with me are Leah Glazer, professor of history and coordinator of the public history program at Central Connecticut State University. Also Chuck Arning, a National Park Service interpretive ranger and AV specialist. Now are you a local historian or are you involved in a community group that works to engage citizens to the history in your town, your city, you can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, to learn more about examples of public history in Connecticut, we're joined on the phone uh, by John Toohey. He's a regional author and historian for the city of Ansonia, Connecticut. John, welcome to the show.
5: Thank you. Great show.
2: So tell me, I, I understand that you and another individual in your town, Greg Martin, uh, who directs the Constituent Services Department, you've collaborated on a living history project to promote exactly. to promote the history of an- an- Ansonia. So how are you doing this exactly, and what are you focusing on?
5: We're doing it online. We have actually we have an online museum that we're building, uh, and we hope eventually it will go into a physical museum. What we're concentrating on is it's groundswell. It's a grassroots uh, thing. Ansonia has only had 18,000 people. We're a small city, Uh, 18,000 people for about 60 years. But yet the numbers we were getting on our Facebook page, Ansonia History, were far surpassed that, 500, 1,500 people a week are reading our history. The connections to Ansonia are deep, and they go generational. It surprised all of us. We had no idea. And what we're doing is simple history. Uh, I like to think of it It's our story. Uh, to we, we give a nod, of course, to the WASPs who built America, who built uh, Connecticut, especially, and our valley. They were great men and women. We felt, some of us, that the role of a fairly large portion of Connecticut, certainly of Mansonia, ethnics, Irish people, uh, Italian Americans, Jews, blacks, Catholics, uh, we I don't know that our voice was being heard as much as it should have been heard. And look what we were facing in all fairness, a pretty awesome group uh, and I say that in all due respect. So we tried to we we give a nod of course to the founders but we we try to celebrate that group, that portion of Americans who came here Uh, it's a pretty great story. I mean, they they came with almost literally nothing. And I think the fact that they, the effort of coming here is a praise to our country, to our city, and they built a great, we have a great community. So that's what we're working on.
2: So how are you exactly uh, engaging with people in Ansonia and outside your city to know these, uh, these facts about who built Ansonia?
5: You know, we use the newspapers, so it's all factual. Um, And we just try to find things that have been largely overlooked. Uh, uh, As an example, there was a fellow in Ansonia who who had the first – our city streets were lit uh, early on with electricity. Edison came to Ansonia to find out what we were doing. So little things that are often overlooked aren't known by the general public. Uh, a fly middleweight champion named Pinky Silverberg. We had, to everyone's surprise, a fairly large Jewish population in Ansonia around 1880 to 1900, and it produced people like Pinky Silverberg, welterweight champion of the world. So that sort of thing, interesting, Uh, and interesting, a little off the curve. And it's worked. It's worked. So we stay away from standard history, you know, a battle was fought and -and so-and-so.
2: When you say that it's worked, how do you know? What are you hearing from people? Well, the numbers.
5: I mean, we've done virtually nothing to promote this. The mayor uh, has been behind us all the way. The idea is that we can, because Antonia needs jobs, like so many towns in the Valley. Uh, And it's a way of developing our community even more. Uh, Ideally, the theme in the future would be, come, we have, as you probably know, we have great places to eat in Antonia. So it would be... Come for our history, stay for our food. We've got, we're have got we drenched in history. I mean, Antonio is very old, uh, and it's just lying about. And so we're simply taking what's there and promoting it. How it got to be so popular, I just honestly don't know. I mean, we used Facebook. We did put out two or three books on the subject, small books, um, it's just taken a groundswell i think it's again I, I have to go back to say there's a great sense of community in ansonia there always has been there still is people are people love our city i love my city um and i think that's the only answer i can come up with i put a lot of thought in it. i just don't know why we had this groundswell of Pop- and it just keeps growing
2: This sounds Uh, like an effort.
5: I'm almost afraid we'll run out of history to tell.
2: (laughs) I don't know about that.
5: (laughs) Yeah, I know.
2: Let me me get our our in-studio guest to respond. It sounds, again, like it's a a different way to get people's attention, uh, Leah and Chuck. Um, But can it also be challenging in a way, too, because we hear so often about the benefits of social media, but some of the problems with social media, depending on who is putting out information, is it factual? Mm -hmm. Can we talk about uh, the double-edged sword there? So some of the things
4: we always – this is why we get together at these conferences to kind of talk about these kinds of things. And technology has been a big issue. Um, this new area called digital history which is used in both academic circles and public history circles Um, and it it can be really effective um, for just engaging people. The sharing mechanisms in Facebook and Twitter are really easy to blast out there which is why you don't need a lot of advertising. This idea of crowdsourcing is really kind of built into the public history fabric because you're getting, you know, you can put up a museum or something or a society can put up a picture, um this I love New Britain Facebook site in New Britain, and everybody says, oh, "I, remember that, and they identify the people in it. Um, or they can I- answer a question if people, I don't we found this in our collection. We don't know what it is. Um, so that idea of sharing is really um, is really effective. people, there's this trend to share historical diaries over Twitter. um and you do that in sort of this immediacy, but it it it's tricky because Twitter has this, Immediacy where uh, you know in if you're doing like from the war of eighteen twelve people in the public actually didn't hear these things in that with that kind of immediacy. so there's always these discussions about um, about how to effectively use it um, and certainly like everything else, we have to be careful about um, how we produce it and and who uses. The information.
3: One of the things we chose to do as a way to integrate two states and, you know, 24 cities and towns and a constant battle between Worcester and Providence, who was the second largest city in New England, um, we used a television series, a cable television series. And there are like uh, 75 episodes all up on YouTube now uh, with closed caption. But it was allowed us and the technology is so inexpensive now. Mm-hmm. And it's a great way to bring young people into uh, the mix as far as trying to build uh, a group of talented folks. But young people are used to taking their phones and making movies. And so now it's really easy to put something on Facebook or up on, uh, on YouTube. that's really interesting and fascinating and is a totally different perspective. One of the things we did to balance out this uh, authenticity aspect of it is we'd have local folks telling the stories and then we'd have a, a historian talking about in a general context what was happening. And then, how the story fits into that general context. So, it was a multiple voices going on at the same time, but there would be that key historical perspective in there as well.
4: Lucy, you had asked about jobs that people can get. A lot of jobs that our graduates have been getting have been in the social media because they know how to use it and they know how to manipulate it and they know how to use technology to raise, um, to reach people and raise interest. And so, it's being used for all sorts of things, um, whether marketing, fundraising, just general interest, um, exhibit, online exhibits outreach, all those kinds of...
2: Social media is an, a, an, an easy way to connect with a lot of people, but in an affordable way, too, because mm-hmm. we so often hear, in Connecticut especially, there, there isn't a lot of, of extra funding towards these kinds of initiatives. So is that the key, is to find a way to get as much reach without... Um, you know, having too much of a cost behind it?
4: Yeah, we constantly have to be really creative. I mean, everything does cost money, and, and expertise costs money, and time costs money. So I'm not going to say that you know we, we, we need support of, of uh, preserving our heritage, the Connecticut Humanities Council and, and all of these places. You need support. Um, but we are also um, a group that is used to um, being very creative. Um, on how we uh, reach people, it's it's not a hard sell. Um, once people are aware of their history, um, to become connected to that, um, and yeah, and technology is just another tool for that.
2: Chuck, uh, your response to the role of funding uh, from whether it's a state or town or the federal government, and is there more of uh, an effort to find private funders for these kinds of grassroots efforts?
3: I think that grant writing is a tremendous skill people need to have. Uh, I don't think you can look to the federal government. Certainly, you know, the parks are a lot of the parks are totally underfunded. Um, and so you need to be very creative in how you put these collaborations Mm -hmm. together. I think that's one of the key words that public historians use. It's a collaborative process. Um, And so sometimes I'll use, I go and do our story in other people's sites. It's like I play in other people's yards and if I'm good they ask me back. But the key is I'm using your historical site to talk about a story and I'll use it because I can make a national story out of this local story. And so That saves me. I don't have to pay for any kind of location. I don't have to pay. And, you know, the people are willing to bring out their horses or the oxen to do some of these things. So it saves me. I don't. So this collaborative process. Partnerships and
2: collaborations are Are really key, really key. This is where we live. Today, we're talking about public history. It's a way to make history accessible to more people, learning about history beyond the classroom. Grassroots efforts in local communities are finding new ways to engage local residents to history where they live. We want to thank John Tuey, a regional author and historian for the city of Ansonia, Connecticut, for uh, telling us a little bit about uh, their project of of talking about the history of Ansonia using uh, Facebook as a way uh, to connect with people. I wanted to take a a phone call now. Uh, Jessica's calling from South Windsor. Jessica, go ahead.
6: Ahead. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for taking my call. I'm learning so much from the program today. <laughs> Great. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about what um, the Wood Memorial Library and Museum and um, some of the, the surrounding area here is, is doing to keep history uh, alive. And you were just talking about collaborations, which I think are, are really important, not only in, in funding, but in, in expertise and and outreach and um, enthusiasm and excitement as well. Um, Right now it's the 250th anniversary of the town of East Windsor, and South Windsor, East Windsor, and Ellington all um, 250 years ago, that geographical area was was all East Windsor. And so we were approached by the 250th um, committee and asked if we would like to do a project with them. Um, We collaborated with the five libraries that are in the geographical uh, area that would have been 250 years ago, and we came up with a Love Your Library scavenger hunt, and it's kind of based on the um, passport, uh, library passport um, program that they have, the state does, and people can pick up a little booklet for free, it has a history of the different libraries, It has a history of the town of East Windsor. And then they go around and answer five um, scavenger hunt questions at each of these libraries. And so they're learning more about the history of the library and how it interacts with the history of the town and um, it's definitely been a lot easier to to reach a a wider-ranging audience.
2: Well, thank you, Jessica, for your call. I visited uh, the Wood Memorial Library. It's a beautiful library, and good to know that East Windsor is uh, celebrating its 250th uh, year. So often in Connecticut when we talk about East Windsor these days, it's about a proposed (laughs) casino coming (laughs) to the town. So good to hear that there's a history being celebrated uh, as well. Thank you, Jessica, for your call. I wanted to get another example of public. history, a way to uh, engage uh, individuals in the history of a community. Um, on the phone with us now is Dennis Culliton. He's an eighth grade history teacher and co-founder of the Witness Stones Project in Guilford, Connecticut. Dennis, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. So tell us a little bit about Witness Stones Project. What is it and uh, how are you um, engaging your local community in this particular initiative?
7: Well, uh, thank you. Um, about a year ago, my friend Doug Nygren, uh came back from Germany with this idea that, uh, of, of, of the Stoppelstein there, where Germans put stones in the ground and other people in, in Central Europe to remember where Jews lived before they were um, deported and, and murdered during the Holocaust. And he, he had been to one of my talks at the library, the local library, about uh, Guilford slavery and the enslavement of people in this community. So he, um, he thought that what if, what if we remembered the enslaved people in Guilford um, using a similar process and project. And, and, you know, the joke is if you go to a surgeon and ask if you need surgery, he'll say yes. Well, if you go to a teacher and <laughs> ask, what do we do with something like this? It's, I, I, my immediate response was bring it to the classroom. So over the last, um, really over the last year, we developed a project where students using um, excerpted and transcribed and, and um, and uh, research that we gathered, a few of us gathered uh, around enslavement in Guilford and and in Connecticut, we had the students do a project where they learned about southern New England slavery and then wrote stories about the enslaved people who lived here. And then um, on November 2nd, we had a culminating activity where we had the students, uh, uh, three of the students uh, read their stories, and we had uh, music, and we had keynote speakers, we had uh, local dignitaries and we in, uh, publicly installed these stones: one in front of the uh, Guilford Town Hall, one in front of Guilford Savings Bank, and one in front of the Highland House. And it talk about um, a sense of place: the Highland House is where an enslaved woman named Candace lived, and it's an extant place. And we think we know what room she was in, and and we know a little bit about Candace in that house. So we really wanted to tell the story, just like in um, Ensonia, they're telling the stories not of the people who built the town, but maybe the people who continue to work it in. In in Guilford, we do a really good job remembering the Puritan ancestors and, you know, Henry Whitfield and the oldest house in Connecticut and all the uh, markers on the houses. We do a fantastic job, but you really have to look hard to remember the hundreds of African-Americans who lived, worked, prayed, and were enslaved here in Guilford.
2: Uh, What has been the response, Uh, because you bring up a good point, Dennis, Uh, so often sometimes it's more comfortable to uh, learn about history that's been sanitized, so to speak, to not embrace uh, uh, the cruelty um, of a a trade that helped also build uh, towns here uh, in Connecticut. Uh, Talk us through a little bit about the response in your community.
7: I, I think that, that for mo, for many people i won 't say most, but for many people it was shock it was a, you know we we remember Harriet Beecher still spent time here in her her you know maternal grandmother 's house after her mother died in Litchfield. We know about uh, you know Lyman Beecher growing up in North Guildford we know you know all the stories about our um our abolitionists, and we have even an abolitionist church sitting here on the Guilford Green that was built uh, for people who broke away from that church. So we remembered, you know, I think in Connecticut we're very good at patting our back ourselves on the back for <laughs> the wonderful things we did about, around the Underground Railroad, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think people were shocked that as we're pointing our fingers south and saying those people haven't gotten over there you know their relationship with slavery. That, you know, in a sense, that maybe we haven't gotten over our relationship with slavery either. Um, and I, th- I think so. It's more of a shock. We had had no negative pushback, um, but we've we've had a lot of people really wanting to know, you know, the story. They wanted to know. They wanted to remember what happened here. And and the students are a wonderful conduit because they're they're kind of coming in open-minded, saying. This is what it was like. This is the lives these people lived, and this is how we as a community um uh, dealt with these people so uh and, and, and they are and, and they are us in a sense our our cultural ancestors in Guilford include people of color <laughs> versus just the white people we tend to see at our house museums and, and the docents and stuff like that so it's, it's it's a it's a very i think it's eye-opening and maybe shocking but i don't we have had no negative pushback
2: and Dennis, uh, before i get response from our studio guests uh, to the witness stones project you mentioned that your students have really embraced this are learning about the past have you seen them make the connections to uh, some of the social justice issues we hear uh, so often about today. Uh,
7: yes, they have, and, and you know, in eighth grade, just a couple things. You know, shout out to the, the social studies people at, at the state uh, Department of Education. Part of our responsibility is now to teach local history as part of our curriculum, and to have the kids involved with civic engagement. So, in a sense, we're <laughs> training, I think, for future future students, for Leah, but we're training students to to not only you know, kind of get the information and write about it, but to do something with it, and, and that's that's a wonderful part. But we see the students, and as we as we're going through the Civil War unit, we talk about African American soldiers and how hard it was for them even to become soldiers. And our next unit is going to be about you know Reconstruction and Jim Crow. And the lessons from the Witness Stones project keep repeating themselves. It's about you know justice, equality, inclusion, and tolerance. And those 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 issues don't go away, and they and they certainly reverberate today. And, and, and every day, it almost seems, if you, if you open the newspapers or, or read a magazine.
2: Chuck Arning, your response to the Witness Stones project, this is a very innovative way to learn about history.
3: And, and we know the Stupersteins very well because one of our colleagues, Marty Blatt, um, his family was involved with the Holocaust, has been to um, Germany and seen some of the Stones themselves, uh, as I have too. It's a very, very powerful, powerful piece. And Dennis, you get great kudos for taking that because it, that's what make history important and history relevant. It's, and we call it putting history to work because here we have a chance for kids to connect to their community with voices they don't normally hear. And I think that Dennis has done a great job and it sounds like a real collaborative process. The one other point I wanna make though is one of our best uh, partners are libraries, the public libraries and the librarians in there are just magnificent people. They know so much, they interact with the community so well They are just key, key people because they have access to a lot of cool material there. The the only ones who know about it are the librarians.
2: (laughs) I'm married to a librarian, so I hear what you're saying, Chuck. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Dennis, before we let you go, I want to take some uh, listener calls as well. But I'm curious, how is this project funding? What are your plans to
7: expand? well uh initially we got uh, we have wonderful uh funding opportunities right here in Guilford the Guilford um Fund for Education which is a, a organization started by parents to fund um, unique and, and, and inventive projects to, to bring to the classroom, and, and they're very supportive. The Guilford Foundation has a group called the Youth Advisory Group, which they work with the Rotary Club, and this is young people who have money to to, to give out in grants, and, and they help fund us. Also, we also get funding from membership, which is, as you know, is very very important. And we also got funding from a local contractor, uh, Ken Ken Horton and his businesses, because he's involved with restoring old buildings and 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 you know bringing them, uh, reusing you know, re- restoring old buildings, and he's appreciative of the uh, of the work of the Guilford Preservation Alliance and in those places. So he's in a sense giving back to a community where he's taking a, an old an old mill and turning it into. Um, you know wonderful uh, residential units, so so we 're working that way as we move forward. We hope to get you know funding through the uh, Connecticut humanities in places like that because we are in a sense a growing community our our goal is to put you know at least ten, uh, three stones in the ground in Guilford for the next 10 years. So that would be 30 stones. But we also want to share this project in other communities where it might even be more impactful uh, for those communities to think about what slavery was and, and who belongs in, in Connecticut and who belonged in Connecticut. So.
2: Well, Dennis, uh, thank you for that. Uh, Leah, did you want to respond? Yeah,
4: I just wanted to make a couple of points. Um, this issue of, um, so you asked who public historians are, uh, The very um passionate group that definitely believes that uh, history can be used as tools for reconciliation and social justice, and this is a great example of that. And then glad you mentioned the social studies frameworks do, um, and and many of my colleagues were part of putting that in place to have local history a part of the social studies frameworks and to connect um, that is now K through 12 connect places to what the curriculum.
2: I want to thank Dennis Cullerton again, an eighth-grade history teacher and co-founder of the Witness Stones Project in Guilford, Connecticut. We'll uh, tweet out a link to uh, that project, uh, at where we live. Uh, Thanks, Dennis, for your time. I wanted to fit in a call. Sally's calling from Berlin. Sally, go ahead with your question or comment.
0: Hi. um, I'm president of the Berlin Historical Society, and one of the things that we've been doing over the last, uh, I think we started about three years ago, was we hold story shares, and uh, it starts out with a PowerPoint presentation of photos from usually a particular place in town, um, Kensington or East Berlin, um, different areas. And we present them to the general public, uh, very often to seniors. Uh, one of the things that we found was that uh, we, as people are passing on, we're losing their stories, and this is such an important part of our heritage that uh, we wanted to continue uh, making sure that we had these stories. So um, usually three or four times a year, we will uh, have a program, and uh, it's it's worked out it's been wildly successful in town where people just will come usually to the senior center or to the library and have an opportunity to to tell their stories, what they remember about a particular area in town or maybe a particular business. Uh, We had one about the train station um, this past year. That was uh, after we lost our uh, beloved train station uh, to fire last year. That was very, kind of cathartic in many ways to folks. Uh, We've also talked about um, uh, different businesses and uh, quirky characters that people have uh, long memories about, and it's a a chance to share their stories. We do record these so that they are uh, available. If you can't remember a certain thing, we can... uh, you know, we can at least uh, rewind and uh, get get per, uh, people get people's different perspectives. Well,
2: thank um, you, thing thank you, have, Sally. Uh, Unfortunately, we gotta we gotta go to break. But thank you for letting us know uh, what uh, your historical society is doing in, in the town of Berlin. Uh, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Alpthanchal. Today, we're talking about public history. Have we sold you yet on this idea of learning about the history where you live, connecting in new ways to the history that surrounds all of us? Coming up, we hear from the southeast part of the state in Norwich and a public history project there to engage city residents. Now, how's your community connecting residents to your city or town's history? How does the past connect to important issues today? Join the conversation. Email wherewelive at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nall Coming up tomorrow, Eleanor Roosevelt was a woman with a huge historical footprint. First lady, first delegate to the United Nations, a larger-than-life citizen of the world. On the next Where We Live, we'll talk with Connecticut author Amy Bloom. Her new novel, White Houses, portrays the private, human side of Eleanor through her romantic relationship with a female journalist. Join the conversation. That's tomorrow. Also, Where We Live's Making Her Story series highlights the journeys of prominent women with ties to Connecticut. Join me tomorrow, April 3rd at 6 p.m. at the University of St. Joseph for a conversation with retired FBI agent Sheila Horan. Space is limited. You can reserve tickets at WMPR.org slash Making Her Story. I hope to see you there. Today, we've been talking about public history or the way history can be highlighted and celebrated in a community through engagement versus how history is often taught in a traditional classroom. Remember that state tourism slogan, still revolutionary? It was mocked by many, but love it or hate it, it does point to one of Connecticut's attributes, and that is a state rich with history. We've been hearing how local historians and others are finding new ways to engage residents with the past. These efforts can sometimes relate to social justice and political issues today. I want to welcome into the conversation Regan Miner. She's a consultant for the city of Norwich and the Norwich Historical Society. Regan, welcome to the show. Good morning, thanks for having me. Thank you for calling in. And in studio with us again is Leah Glazer from CCSU and Chuck Arning, a National Park Service interpretive ranger, as we talk today about public history. I understand you're a master student in CCSU's public history program and you're involved with the Norwich Historical Society. How did you get involved and why?
1: Well, the reason why I wanted to get involved with the Norwich Historical Society is I credit my parents because they instilled a love of local history in me and my younger sister as um, children. They would take us to all of our local museums and visit our local cultural sites, and that really made me appreciate and have a passion for our local history, made me want to pursue my master's in public history and really make a career out of promoting local history.
2: So in Norwich, uh, there's a project called Walk Norwich. Tell us about that project.
1: Walk Norwich is a very exciting project that the Historical Society helped coordinate with a number of other um, heritage groups, organizations in town. But what it is, is it's essentially based off of our guided walking tours that we do throughout the city of Norwich. And we do those walking tours seasonally, and we had members ask us, you know, we'd love to do these tours more often versus just a specific time of the year. And other members who reached out to us live, you know, across the country and said we'd love to reconnect with our hometown and we'd love to see your tours that you give. So that got us thinking about making these guided tours self-guided. And the self-guided component includes a web, website, walknorwich.org, which has an audio component for people who want to listen to the tours. Then we have interpretive signage and wayfinding signage that are on the physical trails themselves. And then, of course, we have a self-guided trail brochure with a map and information and historic images to complement the tour. So it's really a great way for residents and also people who moved out of the area to reconnect with their local history.
2: Um, how, how is this project uh, connecting with younger people? It sounds like a, you're a young woman uh, that's involved in the Historical Society in Norwich. That's a good thing. But how do you get a more engagement from uh, you know young people who may have a lot of things going on and they don't want to maybe take the time to, to visit the Historical Society?
1: hmm Well, one of the benefits, um, for me at least, is I have many board members um, who work in the public school system in Norwich, and they're very active in trying to get their students involved with local history. Um, For example, I've gone into a couple of their classrooms before and given talks about um, some of the local history projects that we have going on. In addition to, we've given tours to school groups as well. Um, We've given the guided tours of the self-guided trail system. Um, The two trails we have that we offer for tours Um, are the Uncas Leap Trail, which is about Norwich's rich Native American history, and then the Benedict Arnold Trail, which is about Norwich's revolutionary history, um, with an emphasis on Norwich's infamous Native son, Benedict Arnold. How can
2: we not mention Benedict Arnold?
1: (laughs) (laughs) He's a controversial figure, but we essentially are using his name as the hook, because everybody across the country has heard of Benedict Arnold, and he is the the hook to get people interested in uh, the trail and to get them learning more about other local figures from the Revolutionary War, not just Benedict Arnold.
2: Uh, Chuck Arning, again, we're hearing a, a different uh, public history project that's self-guided that gives uh, people the ability to learn about uh, the city of Norwich uh, on, at their leisure, uh, a very effective way to, to reach people of all different ages? Or what are some um, advice when you hear about this kind of project uh, to, to, to engage more people?
3: Well, I think one of the key things is you want to put as many products out there as you can to entice a wide range. I mean... The general public is is a complex audience, and so the more different products you put out there, the better you have chance you have of of connecting with a, a segment of that. Some people like don't tell me. Let me explore my own, and then they'll go out and buy a book, or I'll read a magazine, or they'll see something about it because it caught their imagination. I think that uh, thematically connecting some of these stories, and when I go back to uh, the woman from East, uh, from Berlin and Dennis out in the um, and Guilford, Mm -hmm. one of the key things that they're they're digging up the untold stories that we talked about earlier that the Park Service said, we want to do this. So I think thematically connecting your stories together, producing as many products as you can, and I think is a great way to bring in and to widen your audience, and also to bring in some of these folks who say, geez, I can do that. I can help them by doing that. Mm -hmm. Because you want to continue to build your, your, uh, your, Uh, the folks within your organization. I think that's one of the real things you struggle with is how do you, history's, a lot of people see as history being old. We want young people involved with these historical societies.
2: Uh, Leah Glazer, we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, again, we were talking about this concept of public history. Maybe people haven't actually heard that term before, but they've experienced it, mm-hmm. um, and ways to get more people involved. I understand that public historians are coming to Hartford soon. Yeah. More, more public historians.
4: I wanted to plug this in, a, in another event, if I could. So, But the big exciting thing is next year, um, March 27th through March 30th, um, there's a national um annual meeting of public historians every year. This year, it's in Las Vegas. Next year, March 27th through 30th, 2019, it's coming to Hartford. It'll be at the convention center, and every, anybody is invited to register. So um, we're going to be planning a lot of different field trips and um, activities and events um, open to the public as well um, throughout the summer and So get ready for a lot of historians storming Hartford. And if I could just mention one other event. On April 29th, uh, CCSU is doing a history harvest for the Latino community in the um, New Britain Hartford area, which is where community members bring in um, photos, uh, artifacts, things like that. We digitize it and we try to start documenting um, the histories of uh, communities that uh, don't normally aren't normally talked about, aren't part of that colonial story.
2: Well, thank you uh, for uh, that information. Again, it is interesting to hear about Mm -hmm. uh, the different communities in the state that don't get a lot of attention. So we'll be curious to hear what comes of more projects coming out of, of CCSU. Again, Leah Glazer is professor of history and coordinator of the public history program at Central Connecticut State University. Thank you for coming in today. Thank you so much. Also, Regan Miner joined us by phone, a consultant for the city of Norwich and the Norwich Historical Society. Regan, thanks for calling in. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And Chuck Arning is a National Park Service interpretive ranger and AV specialist. Um, You've piqued my interest. I want to learn more now about the Blackstone River Valley. Now I know where to go.
3: Well, uh, along the Blackstone, if you Google uh, Blackstone River Valley National Historical Park slash YouTube, our videos are up there. It's a great way. And for a lot of you folks out there, it's an easy thing to copy of how we did this. This is not rocket science it's a great way of thematically putting stories together from your community. And uh, we do from environmental and cultural to historical, Underground Railroad to the present, um, women's rights. There's a whole tapestry of history that you will find throughout your communities.
2: Well, thank you, Chuck, uh, for coming in today. We're going to tweet out links to those videos that you mentioned. Uh, we appreciate your time.
3: I'm excited to be here. Thank you.
2: Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Thanks to Kate Tolarski, Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, As always, thanks for listening.